Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. This week's topic of discussion was one of your picks, so I will go ahead and turn it over to you. All right, well, today we are, as I said last episode, heading into the Inferno with Spider-Man. Uh, this is Amazing Spider-Man issues 311 to 313, the three issues of that series that tied into the X-Men event Inferno. I guess we'll have to briefly explain Inferno at the top just in case because I, I, it sort of ties into this. But basically this is the, I would say the quintessential, well I mean it's, it's 89 but it's like quintessential like early 90s Spider-Man where he's married to mary jane and the book is actually good for a while yeah and creative team wise it's is it michelini david michelini i think so yeah is the writer this is the todd mcfarlane as art period so it is that peak moment in spider-man the rest of the roll call is rick parker on letters colorist bob sharon and evelyn stein just to go ahead and finish that out but it is that very specific late 80s, very early 90s, McFarlane visually defined moment for the character. And as far as Inferno, it's an X-Men event, but for these stories and the tie-ins, I feel like all you really need to know is that hell is on Earth, there's demons, magic's afoot, and inanimate objects are coming to life and attacking people. Basically, demons are possessing inanimate objects inside New York City and also uh, the Empire State Building's, like, super tall. I, that ties into some of the Spider-Man stuff, but maybe not the stuff in the, these issues. There were, like, three different Spider-Man titles that tied into Inferno. Um, I don't think you need to read the others to understand what's happening in the Amazing Spider-Man ones, but Webov and Spectacular Spider-Man both, like, fill in additional stuff that's going on. Spider-Man was busy during the Inferno. Like, the X-Men are, like, whole teams getting one book, and then Spider-Man, one guy has three. He's busy in Inferno, but he also doesn't really know the full scope of what's going on, because he's bopping around of his own stuff. Like, it's not that he teams up with the X-Men for the main conflict. He's just sort of getting ping-ball machines spun around between his various villains as New York is on fire. He's just like, what the fuck is this? Why is a wall attacking me? Why are lions trying to kill people? They're statues! Yeah... And part of his reason for not immediately realizing what is going on is that the villain in the initial issue, Free Eleven, is Mysterio, so naturally shit's gonna happen that doesn't make sense, so I guess it's all illusions. I, my favorite detail about these is him assuming the Inferno is no big deal because it is presumably just some more, more illusions set up by Mysterio. <laughs> it is a fun sort of way to set up, like, Here's how we're tying into the event without having to really explain to Spider-Man what the event is. Like, this is why Spider-Man doesn't show up to help the X-Men, because he just thinks it's all fake. Yeah. Uh, issue 311 has a very nice Mysterio cover where we have the fishbowl, we have the gauntlets, we have 
all the smoke in the corner behind him. And of course, naturally, we have Spider-Man's reflection in the fishbowl looking just like distorted the way a reflection is. And there's just a bunch of fun hands. And McFarlane's work, I suppose I tend to like more than dislike. I'm not like a stan of it. Largely, I guess, because I associate it with an era that I'm not particularly attached to. But I do sort of appreciate just the sheer amount of line work. Like, I am generally aesthetically attracted to artist work that's just really busy. Um, I want to head into this saying, first of all, fuck you, Todd McFarlane. Like, great guy? No. Great artist? Yes. I, I imprinted specifically on issue 312 back in the day after the first Spider-Man movie came out. If you listened to our... Was it our third episode? Uh, four. Our fourth episode. I talked about how after seeing the first Spider-Man movie for the first time, I got taken to a comic book store by my parents and could buy a couple comics. And I got some Spider-Man single issues. And one of the ones I got was issue 312. So uh, I did not become an X-Men fan generally until about three years ago. But the X-Men obsession was clearly always dancing around me because I was like, what is this Spider-Man event about demons that I don't understand fully when reading those? I assumed it was something that Spider-Man wound up dealing with. Yeah, it just is the tie-in that throws X-Men shit at you, but is also like, you'll be fine without it, I suppose, in terms of legibility. This is as good as a tie-in gets in that, yes, if everything in New York is being possessed by demons, it makes sense for Spider-Man to encounter demons because he's in New York, but we don't have to have Spider-Man, like, filling in important plot points and stuff. Like, Inferno, you can just read the issues that are marked as the actual main plot of Inferno. Yeah, it doesn't feel hellishly disruptive. Like, obviously I haven't read the issues bookending this from the regular non-tie-ins, but it doesn't seem to me like something that radically different from what could have simply happened as a plot of how New York got fucked up any other day, so. Yeah, like, the effects of Inferno are mostly used in these issues to have Harry Osborn remember being the Green Goblin and have uh, Kirk Connors turn back into the Lizard, but both of those are things that could kind of happen in Spider-Man comics anyway, so, like, it's fine. I think it's a very good use of it. But diving in here, we have the two lions at the front of the New York Public Library have come to life and are attacking people. And Spider-Man swings in with his incredibly detailed, overdrawn little web lines. I love these. I love the way McFarlane draws Spider-Man, generally. Yeah, like, the webs are an excellent example of just so many lines, so much detail. I think the main thing that really just holds true throughout all of his work is just there's a constant sense of motion. You know, like the motion lines, the dynamics, the posturing of how Spider-Man's swinging. You know, like he looks like the web slinger moving through New York. Yeah, the, the very extreme poses that Spider-Man sort of does while he's swinging around are great. I love the way he draws the eyes. They have like this little... So they're pointy on two ends rather than just one, which it's normally like... Most artists will give him sort of a more rounded shape towards the middle. 
And uh, the way these done, it feels like it informs stuff like the Raimi movies and that eye shape, where it's a lot more angular and I would say a little bit more threatening as a design choice. Like, this is very much still just something that you'd say, oh, that's the classic Spidey suit. But just, like, the way McFarlane draws it is just that little bit different. Yeah, it's classic, but also would look distinct if you did sort of a bunch of screen grabs and a lineup of just, like, the various Spidey artists through the years. So, uh, yeah, Spidey fights and smashes the lions and stops him from attacking people of course he'd he'd had his camera set up to take photos of him as he did it because uh pete's always trying to make that money off of for some i don't know why he keeps going back to J. jonah jameson um as he's swinging away he comes across uh i'm gonna call him a goon uh peanuts mulrooney is this character's name holding up uh he's, he's just he's just like a bald guy with like long hair but also bald there might be dreadlocks, which this guy's white, so that's really fucked up, actually, on his part. He's holding up a couple in the alleyway. There's a lot of mist and smoke. The Spider-Man sort of flips down, still very confused about the lines, but he, you know, this is this is a normal situation he can handle. He pulls the guy's gun away, and he starts running away, at which point the wall comes alive as a giant and starts attacking Spider-Man. Um, and so the couple who were there... The, um, the guy says, we've got to help Spider-Man, sweetheart. And she's like, Tommy, what are you doing? At which point, the giant wall man just snatches his fist down and squishes Tommy. Yeah, it's like Spider-Man saves the couple from the attempted mugging just for the man to try and repay the favor and die. Because it's not a Spider-Man story without giving him something to feel bad about. Fighting a giant wall. Yeah, like, specifically, like, animates to, like, look like a giant humanoid in shape, but just, like, the texture of, like, the wall and, like, the brick. Did we already specify, like, the lions earlier were specifically, like, the New York Library, like, lion statues come to life? Yeah, like, right at the beginning of Ghostbusters, which, um, Inferno is Ghostbusters heavy with the references, I would say, overall. They were definitely very inspired by the then-recent movie Ghostbusters. <laughs> But yeah, that tragedy happens. We get a cut to the Parker apartment where Mary Jane is hanging out in a very revealing outfit. Some very high... In as they establish in the dialogue, the air conditioning has gone out. So... And it is her home. So yeah, it at least, it, do, it makes sense in universe. Todd McFarlane. The air conditioning's out. This is visual storytelling. I'm kidding. No. <laughs> At least the cheesecake has an explanation. But yeah, just those shorts are hiked up very high on the leg. There's the there's an awful lot of breasts. Hair. I love the hair. It is very, very detailed. Like long flowy hair is yeah. fun. McFarlane is great at hair. And MJ's hair in the late 80s is fantastic. Um, we can we can debate the quality of the cheesecake. There's some stuff in issue three twelve that I actually like, which will be the first time I said something nice about I think any of the cheesecake we've encountered on this podcast. Yeah, like none I'm of normally it. Normally rolling my eyes at it, but yeah, none of it bothers me. It's like it is there largely for the audience, but like it's not so extreme that it just feels stupid. 
you know, like it's not so inhuman or so textually implausible that it feels like a problem. It's just like, oh, here's a sexy lady. There you go. The clothes do look like clothes. They do look like clothes. Like that is another detail of like McFarlane's like line work is like there is thought put into like the ruching and just the general how clothing drapes across a body, I suppose. I think that's not the detail that a lot of readers are thinking about when they look at MJ's clad breasts here, but that is happening. <laughs> anyway, Peter comes home and he's really, really sad. So it's sad Peter next to uh, MJ because, well, like, he feels responsible for this guy dying. And Mary Jane's a little bit, like, she doesn't really know what to say. She's confused about how to help. But, you know, she's she's there for him and listens to him as he explains what happened. Uh, so the next day, Peter is in class at ESU, which he's still fucking going to ESU in 1989. I, I think this was maybe when he went back to try to get a graduate's degree. I think that's what it is. Yeah, like I yeah. think he mentions like a grad advisor. Yeah, I think he's he's gone back. This isn't his initial run in college. Like, it's, that would be insane. It's established that Dr. Connors is working there at the school, which isn't immediately important here, but we'll get back to him in a couple issues. He has been feeling odd lately, but it's probably just the strange weather. Which, uh, yeah, Inferno is um, also there's a heat wave on, which is, I guess, the heat of the fiery pits of limbo interacting with the real world causing the heat wave but um there's a significant chunk of new york that is also just like boiling hot yeah shortly after this peter and mj we get a scene of them in their finest cowboy and cowgirl attire it's, what do you think of this I, well it's specifically like they're going to a, a publicity thing because of mj's model work so, like, fair enough. And, I mean, Peter looks absolutely fucking miserable here. And, um, yeah, it's... They have a very supportive marriage. And, like, it's really nice seeing that. Especially since we haven't seen that in over a decade of the actual comics. She acknowledges that his situation is pretty horrible. But he's also like, well, don't be silly. You know, we this is part of your job being here. And it's fine. And... She's like, okay, but we'll, we'll we'll get through this quickly, you know, we'll just hang out for lo just long enough that I've made my appearance and then we can go again and, you know, you don't have to hang around here and try to socialize while you're like this. And there's a idiot guy in a hat who is for some reason bright pink, don't know why, who gets into a bar fight. Um, I think maybe it's meant to represent, like, flushed, drunk, but it's... Just he's, like solid pink Crayola crown. He's completely pink. The thing is when Peter like wrestles him to, to like disarm him from the broken bottle he's trying to use to attack someone. He also is bright pink. So I guess maybe bright pink is just the color of anger. Yeah, it's a bit awkwardly done to be honest. But anyway, right after he stops uh, the guy, Mary Jane's like, okay, we need to go upstairs and talk. And she very sensibly explains to him that the guy tried to help him because the guy has the same instinct towards heroism that Peter does, where he sees someone in trouble and tries to help, like he just did, and Peter's like, well, I mean, 
I have superpowers. And she's like, yeah, but you, even if you didn't, you would still have done most of these things just slightly differently. Like, the guy made the choice to try and attack the wall, which is what got him killed. It's not actually your fault. And so Peter goes to retrieve his camera that he had set up in the alleyway um, and to, like, start trying to, you know, move past this and figure out what happened. But he he arrives in the alleyway and he found his camera, but the alleyway is completely clean. There is no rubble. The wall is there. It's still very foggy in the alley, though. And Peter, because he has been at this a long time, and first we have yet another issue of Look, superheroes being competent after we were just talking about how great the Justice League were at this by the late 90s. Late 80s, Peter's already like, well, that's probably Mephisto. Uh, he goes to... A- you mean Mysterio? <laughs> yes, I mean Mysterio. Oh, God. No, no Mephisto in this. Thank God. No Mephisto interacting with Spider-Man. I'm just too used to Mephisto showing up in Spider-Man comics. It happens too much. Secret Wars 2, One More Day, and the Nick Spencer Spider-Man run. But yeah. Would not recommend any of those stories. I would recommend the, like, three panel experience, uh, three panels where Spider-Man teaches the Beyonder how to poop. But other than that, I would not ex- recommend any of those. Unrelated to that. <laughs> yeah, Spider-Man sees the fog, sees the way things have gone back to normal, presumably. So he's like, oh, illusion, Mysterio, that's what's going on. But before we move on, I'll point up what's brought to mind by one of these shots of Spider-Man, like, clinging upside down to a wall. One thing you'll notice if you read enough McFarlane's Spider-Man is that he has a tendency to draw Peter Parker with a dump truck ass that here is just hanging (laughs) upside down against that wall. His ass is drawn sort of in the same way that Mary Jane's boobs are, which is as big as possible. As big and And bulbous as possible. Lovingly rendered. Yeah. A little fruity and suspicious on on behalf of Mr. McFarlane. Oh, um, I mean, I I know that the man has said some very disparaging things about, like, how female action figures wouldn't sell when talking about his toy line and how they still have not released a halfway decent Wonder Woman action figure in there that's actually just, like, Wonder Woman in her regular outfit. Um, I'm sure he's also homophobic, so... I... Yeah, probably. I assume... That's why I opened with Fuck You, Todd McFarlane, by the way. He's just, like, a jackass. I... Isn't he one of the ones that, like, shit-talked earlier this year when, like, the Image staff was trying to unionize? Yeah, yeah. Which, like, wow, talk about fucking hypocrisy from um, the people who left Marvel and DC to found Image Comics. Yeah. Like, fuck you, Todd McFarlane. Like, that's frankly enough to go in the fuck you column. Don't know for sure what else there is from him. I don't make a point of following him. I assume it's probably not great. Yeah, I, I like his art in this stuff, but... Um, as soon as he started writing his own Spider-Man book, in my opinion, it immediately became fucking shit. So, you know, I was like, well, this still looks good, but the the plot is nothing, and everything is just as dark and angsty as possible, and there's no, like... It's really cool that we get this stuff where Spider-Man is upset about this horrible thing that happened in front of him that he feels responsible for, but also that he's a good enough superhero to A, with a little bit of help from his wife 
figure out a way to move on and B is able to very swiftly figure out that it was actually one of his villains trying to mess with him. That's cool. It's fun. Yeah, it doesn't fall into the trap of like hero just sort of bumbling around not knowing what's going on even though he deals with things like this all the time like it is competent spider-man uh plus we had mysterio on the cover so i think everyone reading the comic is like when is mysterio coming we love mysterio but anyway he goes after this goon who was you know celebrating getting one over on spider-man with a drink at a bar holds the guy up to the ceiling and is like i need to find the man who paid you and you're gonna tell me where he is uh the guy offers to draw Spider-Man a map. So he goes down the storm drain, which is like where Mysterio is hiding out. And Mysterio is standing there, gesturing his cape very dramatically to absolutely no one in particular. Very long, very dramatic cape. So many folds of cloth. Again, just all the little lines that McFarlane puts in, like there's all the swirls of the smoke surrounding him, twisting in circular motions. There's the draping of the cape. There's like the inherent just like line work on his bodysuit. There's all the circles in his gauntlets that look very Doctor Strange comic-y. It's a very nice Mysterio. On the next page, there's like a lot of using the folds of his cape to like frame panels like they're not like strict usual like standard straight line grid panels it's a lot of like shaping with the fabric yeah it's it's really fucking cool this is where the spawn cape comes from i i really like this shit i'm gonna have a lot of nice things to say about the way that characters with capes are drawn because i think mcfarlane is maybe the best person at drawing capes in comics possibly still to this day He's definitely up there. Yeah, he is an all-star at that. At the very least. Yeah. Um, and basically, Mysterio wanted to break Spider-Man's spirit uh, because he is like, well, I reckon you're beating me because you feel, like, confident and sure of yourself. So if I could just get you to be depressed and sad, I could get on with my uh, trying to steal stuff with illusions without you interfering all the damn time which like that's a fun like villain plot it is it is fair point if you want to win fuck with the opponent's head yeah uh, and like again this is a cool use of like mysterio specifically especially with the inferno coming so he does this whole vanishing into the mist thing and a spider-man crashes through doors and i guess if you don't know mysterio he in the comics was like a special effects producer for movies. So Spider-Man winds up on a movie set, specifically the set of Starfight 4, The Return of the Sequel, which, okay, I don't know whether we're parroting Star Trek or Star Wars here, but it's just an excuse to have some really fucking cool, super weird robot monsters attack Spider-Man. So like, the, the, well, the monsters are robots, but they don't look like robots. They've got like coverings. They look like space monsters. Um, how, how would you describe these? You love a monster. Do you love these monsters? I don't love these monsters. It's not that they're poorly done, but, you know, they're just meant to be beat up in a panel. So they're not, you know, going to have the most unique, amazing designs of all time. They're really just like goopy looking and have a million appendages going about every which way. Eyes on stalks, some toothy mouths, just a bunch of limbs. 
that's just kind of like bundles of goop with some arms sticking out of them. It's it's a fun like page long fight, but um, Spidey escapes the robot things by like dropping down into the basement by smashing the floor underneath him. I guess the basement of the basement because he's kind of already in a basement. Um, so he's trying to like just turn off the electricity so the Mysterio's illusions will power down. Um, and Mysterio has like the ghost of the guy who died show up, and he's like, "Yeah, that's that won't work because that guy wasn't even a person who was there to die. That was an illusion." So he smashes the power and has Mysterio beat. Oh yeah, like is it? What's your read on? If those people, if that couple was ever real, or if they were just illusions. I would assume since the guy got smushed, that he was completely fake. Like, that that was, that man was a hologram, or maybe a robot. The woman, I'm like, I guess that could have been a paid actor, but Mysterio's already paying one person, and like, I think for Mysterio, he'd probably get more of a kick out of building another robot, but who knows. Yeah, that's fair. But, like... Yeah, no, definitely, like, I don't even think the guy was an actor. The guy was just fake. Like, certainly, at the very least, if he was an actor, he didn't actually die. A fake hologram pretend to smush him, and he probably just, like, ran into the fog and just sort of sprinted away. And then there was a fake body left. Okay. But, yeah, after getting his fishbowl smashed in by Spider-Man, you know, Peter goes back to Mary Jane. He's like, I don't know what I'd do without you. I also don't know why Mysterio created all those other illusions, like the lion statues and stuff. But now that he's in police custody, I guess all the craziness will stop. Well, we see the Empire State Building covered in, um, stuff. In in a lot of the, the comics, it actually looks very, like, uh, H.R. Giga alien movie-like stuff that gets sort of piled onto the Empire State Building as it becomes a million stories high. And then we see an elevator that is a giant mouth chomp down and eat someone. Uh, so the craziness is not stopping, as we cut to our epilogue, heading into the next issue, where Harry Osborne wakes up from a bad dream, which clearly, based on the panel on the side of us, was about the Green Goblin. I guess, if you want an explanation of the Green Goblin, listen to our episode on Sin's Past. You could do that, yeah. But, um, I suppose you should listen to the episode, you just don't need to read the story. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fine. The, the great thing about how insanely detailed we sometimes get is, maybe you just listen to our podcast about the bad story. Maybe you just always listen to our podcast, regardless of if the comic interests you or not. That's the way of doing things I approve of. Yeah, yeah, um... But basically, the, the the original Green Goblin was Norman Osborn, Harry's father, who at this time everyone thinks is dead. And Harry, after his dad died, became the Green Goblin for a bit as revenge on Spider-Man for killing his dad. But then he got amnesia, and he forgot that he was Green Goblin, kind of like his dad did that one time, actually. And at this point, Harry is not supposed to remember having been the Green Goblin, or that he knows that Spider-Man and Peter Parker are the same person. But right now, he's having nightmares about having been the Green Goblin. Uh-oh, Inferno. Yeah. And basically, that wraps up the first part. And part two is going to be goblins, goblins, goblins. And the one that you got as a child. So, yeah. Uh, this issue, I watched that first Spider-Man movie with Willem Dafoe as Norman Osborn. I went to a comic shop, and I saw a cover 
with Todd McFarlane drawing Green Goblin and especially Hobgoblin fighting. And I said, fuck yeah, I want to read the shit out of that. I mean, I didn't say that. I was like 2002, I want to say. So I was six or seven. So I didn't say, fuck yeah, I want to read the shit out of that. I probably just like pulled on my mother's sleeve and begged for that one. The thing that gets my attention about this cover isn't the art. It's the text bar above the logo. Where it says, the non-mutant superhero, which is ridiculous on so many levels. One being that having your, like, titular sales text be a negative, like, be an antiphony, like, you know, like, be a rejection, not about Spider-Man, but just, here's what he's not, is ridiculous already. Also, the X-Men line had expanded, but most of the Marvel publishing line at this point still isn't mutants. So most books would be the non-mutant superheroes. It's really, truly, like, who is that for? Ever, like, all I can imagine is just some specific reader who fucking hates the X-Men and is like, good, no mutants in this. Except it's also an Inferno tie-in. Yeah, Inferno continues. And I'm like, I mean... See, Kidney assumed Inferno was a Spider-Man story because it says Inferno continues on the on the cover. And he's also the non-mutant superhero. I didn't know what Inferno was. I didn't know about Cyclops' dead wife, who's a clone of his dead girlfriend. I didn't know that she accidentally sold her soul to the demons. I didn't know about Ilyana Rasputina. But yeah, here... In the gap between issues, the issue basically opens up with Harry having regained his memories and putting his costume on. He is specifically in his attic, screaming at the top of his lungs, Too far! He pushed me too far! Now I have to push back! Show him but no one mucks with the Green Goblin! I say that because the text is doing like a special thing. Yeah, it's, like, the type of font for Green Goblin is, like, the sort that you might see when it's, yeah, like, an old scroll-type font, just, like, old-timey sort of bullshit. He's in the outfit, he's holding the mask in front of him, and, like, the Green Goblin mask, if you, if you, it's got, like, huge, are those eyebrows or eyelashes? Eyelashes. Eyelashes. It's got giant eyelashes because it does, like, fuse with your face, it seems, when you put it on. And fangs attached to it. And it's still, it's stretched out because it's, like, hanging down from where he's holding it. And he is screaming. His mouth is wide open. And he is sweating and looks completely insane. I love Harry Osborn. This is my first ever introduction to Harry Osborn. There's also the implication of just... Here's all my old goblin shit, like, in the attic. What's his dad's old goblin shit in the attic? He's gone up and he's, like, found that box of stuff he got from his dad, and it's bombs that look like pumpkins and a bat-shaped glider. Yeah, it's... With a rocket on it. We're full supervillain mode. And a man purse. I think he would insist it's a satchel. It's a man purse, and that's fine. It's fine that it's a man purse, but it is a man purse. It's magenta. Yeah, it's actually... his magenta outfit over his green outfit. Well, like, like, well, the purse and the belt that go over, like, I'd say the main body of the outfit is purple over, like, the green fake skin. But, like, the the purse is magenta. It is, like, a different color. It's brighter, yeah. Um, 
we just have Bob Sharon on colors here. So, yeah, that's there's there's a change from last issue. But um, Bob Sharon makes a note that, yes, this is brighter. It's very distinct. I, I really like the, the Green Goblin look in the comics. It it would look very strange if you put this in live action, but in the comic it's fun that he just puts on a mask and now he looks like a fantasy character. The green and the purple really stand out against each other. Like, the color combination's nice. Yeah, I, I guess credit to Steve Ditko. More credits to Steve Ditko. Yeah, we still need to do more Steve Ditko, but we tend to have nice things to say to about Jack Steve Kirby Ditko. <laughs> we do need to do more. Well, not more Jack Kirby. We need to do Jack Kirby at all. <laughs> I gotta find something. Um, we got a little page explaining. So some stuff happened in the other Spider-Man books between the sort of cliffhanger and this, but it essentially just amounts to Hobgoblin threaten Harry. Oh yeah, so Hobgoblin, oh god, this is at the time, so far as we knew, the second Hobgoblin, but actually he's kind of the third Hobgoblin, um, retcons. To keep things very simple, uh, everyone thinks that Ned Leeds was the original Hobgoblin, who is, um, the other kind of Green Goblin successor, so what you get in Spider-Man comics is normally someone, probably Harry, sometimes other people, is gonna be like a second Green Goblin to follow up on on what Norman did for whatever reason. In Harry's case, it's normally like revenge for how my father was treated. Then you also get Hobgoblins, which is basically just someone found Norman's shit who doesn't care about Norman and so decided to also put on a goblin outfit and do crimes to make money because they found one of the goblin bases that Norman had set up. And so everyone thinks the first one was Ned Leeds and he's dead. And the, now the guy, this guy named Jason McIndale is the Hobgoblin, and he's Jack-O-Lantern normally in the comics before this and, and also nowadays. He's a big villain for Flash Thompson Venom. The Venom that I've barely read and don't really care about because Venom is specifically I care about Eddie Brock. Kind of the opposite of me, actually. I've read the Flash Thompson stuff that recommended it and I liked it, so... It's not much Venom that I've read and liked, but I like that one. It's a very different thing from Venom normally, though. Yeah. Anyway, um, so basically Hobgoblin threatened his family demanding to know where quote-unquote it is, and Harry doesn't really know what he's talking about, so he buys time by just saying it was in his office in Manhattan, and then Hobgoblin doesn't come back yet, hasn't come back yet, but Harry's memories of being Green Goblin has. So he's now becoming Green Goblin again, so he can go and I guess it's his plan to just kill Hobgoblin to protect his family. At the very least, take him out. Yeah. Beat the shit out of him and leave him for the cops, maybe, but like, yeah. Probably kill him. It's time for goblin fighting. So he heads out. Uh, there's a fun bit where he's having a hard time, like, controlling the glider and he's like wow i must have done this by instinct before back when i was insane there's a whole running theme of my sanity is getting in the way because my memories are back but i'm still holding on to a sliver more mental health than when i did this before I'm, and I'm not in the immediate my dad is dead and i blame my best friend and want to kill him for over it phase 
Yeah, and like, I'm specifically reasoning with the fact that I'm doing dangerous things that could result in me dying, and that's holding me back from doing risky maneuvers, so I'm not gonna do well in this fight because I'm too cautious. Um, yeah, I, I mean, Harry has a lot of issues, and by that I just mean Harry has daddy issues. He has the ultimate daddy issues. He's also got an addictive personality, um, I mean... We talked about this last time we did Spider-Man when we did Sins Past. Oh my god. Um, because all we see of Harry in that story in the flashbacks is Harry, like, having a bad LSD trip while everyone else argues about what to do with him. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I, I didn't realize how much I cared about Harry until Nick Spencer just completely destroyed the character. And I was like, why am I this pissed about Harry Osborn? I was like, do I actually really like Harry Osborn? I think he's a really cool character. Like... He's, he's Peter's best friend, but also them being best friends makes no fucking sense at all. And it's they couldn't have more different backgrounds. Like, Harry is a rich kid who, by every metric that Peter could possibly have in terms of, like, his general life, has had everything handed to him. Um, I mean, he's got a multi-million dollar company that his piece of shit dad put together for him. But, like, Peter had an aunt and uncle who loved and cared about him. And Harry's dad was the Green Goblin. <laughs> and even when he isn't criminally insane, is still just kind of a jackass. And so out of the two of them, Harry winds up being the one who has the most... I'm not gonna say trauma, because I think that everything Peter goes through as Spider-Man just vastly outweighs anything that, like, Harry necessarily goes through. But Harry winds up having the most, like, difficulties with his mental health. He's constantly trying to get the approval of his father, which is a pointless exercise because his father is Norman Osborn, the Green Goblin. But I really like Harry. I, I can appreciate a character who is sort of... He, he's... He, the, the great thing about Harry is he does eventually manage to sort of get better, but then he always winds up backsliding because a plot has to happen. And there was this great bit of stuff after he came back. Like, the one good thing about Spider-Man comics since One More Day, where the marriage got erased between Peter and Mary Jane because of a deal with Mephisto, is they brought Harry back to life, and they had him actually, like, get over his dad problems and work to find an identity for himself that isn't just based around the shadow of his father. And then Nick Spencer came in and fucked that up, and I got... That was upsetting. Because I'd like to see things work out for Harry, but he is unfortunately dead right now, and also apparently his dad was allowed to sell his soul to the devil, and I'm like, how does Harry's dad have any ownership over Harry's soul? What is that? Anyway, back to this actual comic. God, I just... Nick Spencer's Spider-Man run pisses me off. But, you know, we're reading, we're reading a good, fun Spider-Man comic right now. So, Peter and Mary Jane are hanging out on a balcony... And basically, they're both just kind of worried because there's like a bad feeling in New York right now. Uh, that's that's the demons showing up, but you know, everyone just kind of feels off. And so Peter's gonna go to Queens to check on Aunt May, while Mary Jane is going to go and finish a photo shoot for a jewelry ad. And they both like don't want to do that, and they want to just stick together and not do things. It's like very specifically like a slowed down moments with like the narration just being like they're miserable they don't want to leave and they just both kind of sadly go well see ya 
it's a very just like Peter, kiss your wife goodbye at the very least. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's not a happy face. At least give her a kiss on the cheek or something. But anyway, next page, Harry's catching up with the Hobgoblin, but their encounter is immediately broken up by a flash to J. Jonah Jameson losing his shit. The presses are printing what? Pornography, Mr. Jameson, and shutdown controls aren't responding. (laughs) We cut to the Daily Bugle, which, by the way, the shots of, like, the city in this, especially in this issue... The city looks like absolute fucking shit. It looks like 100 (laughs) years after a nuclear apocalypse. Like, the Daily Bugle building has broken windows and, like, smashed brickwork. And, like, lots of lines are not, like, indicating a clean brick building, but are indicating this place has been smashed and maybe rebuilt and then smashed again. And every building in the skyline looks like this. Um, so Peter comes in and is like, Hi Jonah, looking for work, any stories you want me to? Stories? The Statue of Liberty snarled at Taurus this morning, Parker, and the Staten Island Ferry sprouted fins and swam out to sea. The whole blasted city's a story. Just take pictures of anything. He marches off angrily. I love J. Jonah Jameson. I love his reaction to Inferno being, this thing's, this shit's insane. By the way, as a kid, I thought this was J. Joma Jameson exaggerating, but it isn't because this exact shit happened in Inferno. Uh-huh. This is literal. Yeah. The demons definitely did this. They definitely had, like, the Staten Island fairy sprout fins, and they definitely had the Statue of Liberty start snarling at people. They love that shit. Um, so we get back to... Green Goblin and Hobgoblin confronting each other. Hobgoblin with just... This is maybe slightly less dramatic than Mysterio's cape from last issue, but it is torn at the end and, like, more ragged-looking. I guess Hobgoblin looks just like Green Goblin, except he's blue with an orange, like, outfit over the top of that. And then he's got an incredibly dramatic bright orange cape instead of the man purse. He also has a man purse. A gray one... The cape is, like, you know, it's similarly, like, long and billowing, but, like, the edges and, like, the way it fans out, like, the way it's drawn, there's, like, more sharp points to it than in Mysterio's. It looks torn. Yeah, like, the edges and a lot of it look, like, frayed or ripped off. And then it covers his face and, like, the goblin mask that he's wearing with, like, dark shadows most of the time. So you just see, like, the red eyes and sometimes the teeth in there, usually. It's really fucking great. Which, frankly, is a good choice because, like, that shadow is a more imposing look than just his ugly goblin mask. Like, he looks better with just the dark shadow on the face to me. Hobgoblin takes the already good green goblin design and just makes it better. Um, his little goblin guide is pretty cool too. It's like pointier, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit more late 80s. We're heading into the 90s-ified, I would say, than a green goblin outfit is. Yeah, like, just thinking of it, like, I tend to think with Spider-Man of, like, the connected villains being Venom, then getting Carnage, but there's a whole host of goblins as a category too. I, um... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting to see Roderick Kingsley, the original Hobgoblin, kind of. Retcons he is. He was also supposed to be the Hobgoblin, but then that writer got pushed off of the books, 
and other writers didn't follow up on the plots in a way that made sense, which is how we got the weird Ned Leeds thing and the Jason Mackendale thing leading into this. But anyway, um, so they start fighting, you know, there's some pumpkin bomb throwing, some, um, they have zappy fingers. Well, Hobgoblin has some zappy fingers, and he's got a dramatic cape that, like, does a panel border, and Harry's sort of like, oh, uh, yeah, maybe this wasn't such a good idea after all. Largely gets his ass handed to him. Yeah, he's, like, clearly going to lose this fight as of right now. We cut to a page about Kurt Connors hanging out at the university after hours because he's just too dedicated to his work for some reason. And he's getting a coffee from a guy who sees the reflection of the lizard in the coffee machine that he's, like, pouring the coffee from. And, um, Kurt is like, huh, that's weird. He seemed to be afraid of me like I was when the lizard, when I was, that, like people used to act around me when I was the lizard. But that's ridiculous. I don't turn into the lizard anymore. I want to. That's the one part of my life I've got completely under control. Meanwhile, his feet hug scaly and green. Inferno got him fucked up. Yep. Inferno. (laughs) Just, you don't need to explain it. It's just, Inferno does this to you. It will fuck you up. Um, so Peter figures out, uh, he gets a letter from Liz explaining what's going on with, um, Harry and Hobgoblin. Specifically, it's that Harry's disappeared, but Harry's like, uh, Peter's just sort of like, well, um, he's probably just going after Hobgoblin, so I better change into Spider-Man and hope that Mary Jane will be okay until I'm able to come back. Um, and then because we cut around a lot in this, we have, um, this one page of Mary Jane in... I guess this is like a faux Egyptian outfit, which, um, questionable, uh, jewelry ad designers when you're putting white redhead Mary Jane Watson into this outfit, but luckily, uh, it gets ruined almost immediately because the snake and scarab themed jewelry come to life and start trying to attack people. Um, we later get a page where Mary Jane grabs a fire axe and slashes them all up because gold is a soft metal and you can just take it out with a fire axe. Which is actually really fucking cool. Yeah, yeah. When the Inferno is all over, that's just going to be a lot of product ruined. A lot of sponsored product that her bosses are going to have to answer for. Um, yeah, I, I, this, is, this is really cool. I really like Mary Jane getting to beat shit up with a fire axe. They need to figure out how to do that kind of thing where she gets to have something to do on her own more often. If they, you know... Let her back into the comics on a regular basis again. Yeah. Back to Spider-Man swinging. So he's found the fight happening between Hobgoblin and Green Goblin. He busts into the building to try and take out Hobgoblin. And he's very surprised that Harry is wearing the Green Goblin outfit. We get some cool fighting back and forth. Um, But basically Harry, because he's... Harry has fucking issues. He's like, stop it. My family's been threatened and I should be the one to protect them. And it's like, Harry, you need to stop listening to your dead dad. Just... This Osborne bullshit is toxic and not good for you. Let the guy with actual superpowers and capabilities handle this for you. Peter being Peter and like... So the thing about Peter Parker, this is something that I actually really love, is even though he is a very altruistic superhero, his first instinct in almost any situation is to do things that are in a way that would help him out. So his way to gauge how far down the band Harry is, 
is to double check that Harry hasn't remembered that he's Spider-Man. Yeah. He's like, better better see how far his memory's been restored. I'm gonna check and see if he remembers who whether Peter Parker and Spider-Man are the same person. He's like, go he's like, go go hang out with with Peter. And he's like, I won't bring anyone else into it. Not Peter and not you, stay out of it. He's like, well at least he doesn't remember my secret identity. So that's something. He also told me to stay out of it, but I'm not gonna do that. So he like latches a web onto the end of Green uh, Hobgoblin's glider and follows them out. Um, Hobgoblin tries to swing him into the side of a building that, I, I guess this is an inferno thing. For some reason, it's got a bunch of spikes coming out of it. The demons are having some fun. They're like spikes. Spikes are evil. Uh, so Spider-Man misses the spikes though and flies into a water tower instead, which I guess is better. He doesn't die from the water tower. So we're getting, there's, there's just this incredible panel of Hobgoblin's cape, which is... At this point, I would say fully a top for, like, covering a small pavilion and not actually a cape. It is what a superhero cape should be, which is to say, impossibly big. And if you're the person that complains about these things on Twitter, it's because you have no appreciation for arts. Let the cape keep getting bigger. This cape could just swallow several people whole. Any McFarlane cape is perpetually large enough that it could be Cloak's cloak and just swallow people up in the dimension within itself. Did McFarlane ever... I guess he probably did draw Cloak and Dagger because they were all over Spider-Man comics at this time. I imagine probably at some point for an issue or something, yeah. That is a comic I need to look at. Yeah. For Cloak. Not necessarily for how he would draw Dagger. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Dagger's already kind of like... (gasps) But... Yeah. Um, anyway, so Harry decides he's that being sane is probably the one advantage he's got over Hobgoblin. So he disappears and he fully, he pulls a Star Trek 2, um, I, I guess. So in Star Trek 2, Captain Kirk takes advantage of the fact that Khan, who is steering this other ship that's about the same, like, size and level of power as the Enterprise is not thinking like he's in space that covers three dimensions, but thinking like he's in the ocean that covers two, and just sort of tricks him by, like, coming up from below, because he's just not thinking about, like, what would be below him. Um, in this case, Harry just flies above Green Goblin and dumps out his man purse of grenades that look like pumpkins on top of the guy, and, you know, Hobgoblin fires off, all of the little sparkle fingers he can, but it's not enough to stop the uh, all the grenades, and he breaks the his glider and crashes onto the ground. It's pretty clever of Harry. Um, you know, remember that Z-axis when you're flying. It's very important. Yeah, height above the ground is the dimension to keep in mind. People forget that. So Harry goes down and he grabs Hobgoblin and threatens him, like, you know, come near my family again and I'll kill you. This is where I'm reminded that he named his son Norman, which just, oh my god, Harry. Why couldn't you have named him after Liz's dad? I don't even know what that guy's name is, but just, Harry, come on. Literally anyone else. <laughs> this name, you named it your son after the worst person you've ever known. Uh, this is where we find out that Hobgoblin wanted the Green Goblin formula, which is like the, the, it's the super soldier serum that also drives you insane. And um, Harry's is like, you're an idiot. That formula was destroyed years ago. You think I wouldn't have used it against you if I had it? 
Which, like, damn, Harry, I would not have taken that shit. You know that shit drives people crazy. Like, it, it very explicitly is, like, criminal insanity juice. You take it and you just have this weird fixation with robbing bank robbers and, like, Halloween masks. And he's already back to acting questionable enough as is. Yeah, I love how the mask has given him fangs. Yeah. It's great. Like, teeth built into the mask. Sharp, pointed, spiked teeth. I... The, the Green Goblin mask. I, I I want them to look like this in the movies, but obviously you need to do a thing where it's a physical transformation or something, because it just... There's, there's no way you could do, like, a rubber mask that does this. Um, well, Hobgoblin despite not having super strength, throws Harry off of him and then starts firing sparkle blasts at him. But Spider-Man saves Harry and then Hobgoblin flies away. Uh, Spider-Man suggests that Harry should just start, like, fighting crime as the Green Goblin, which just seems insane. And Harry's like, I'm not crazy anymore. I've got responsibilities. Maybe you'll understand someday if you get married. Which, ouch. So we finish the issue with Spider-Man and Green Goblin sort of flying off, going their separate ways, and a little tease of more of Inferno to come as the door to Kurt Connors' office opens and the lizard is popping out going, Yes! Yep, the, the best villain's coming. As we've been fucking reading these, I've had the question in my mind of... Is the best Spider-Man villain Mysterio or the Lizard? And it is very stiff competition. It's hot. It's, it's, it's Green Goblin. For me personally, anyway. <laughs> but, like, both of my favorites being in these free issues is, is, is a good percentage for me. The only way it could be better is if we, we got some symbiotes in here. But I think that's a me opinion, not a you opinion. I can't stand the symbiotes. They make no sense as Spider-Man villains. They belong in a different comic. They belong in Venom. But moving on, issue 313, we have this great cover of McFarlane's Lizard, which he draws the lizard differently than than I think he normally is drawn, I would say. It, it, yeah, the like... The way the face is structured is very different. The bone structure is very different. There's, like, pronounced brows in a different way. Much sharper fangs in the mouth. Like, he really looks nothing like the original Ditko Lizard, who's more just kind of a bumpy circle of a head. Like, this has many more ridges to him. Much more of a snout. Uh, slightly less, like, binocular vision. A little bit more, like, eyes towards the side of the head. Just not that much. The brows are so big, they're definitely blocking his ability to look forwards, though. It's cool, though. Oh, I like it. Yeah. And the issue basically opens up with a shark swimming through the New York tunnels. Um, yeah, so once again, a couple of things have happened in the other issues, but it basically amounts to Peter and Mary Jane have met up again and are now trying to get home. There you go. All you need to know. Yeah, and... Like to Queens, though. They're trying to go and see Aunt May. Yeah, it's just, the world's on fire. We should probably check on my aunt, who... We're perpetually worried about. Noted 900-year-old, constantly near the edge of death, Aunt May. She's not a sexy mom yet. That's no, 20 years later. This is not Marissa Tomei. Uh, this is not even Sally Field. Honestly, at this point, she's older than any even the Rosemary Harris version from the Raimi movies. 
um, Aunt May is just fully in the realm of, I can't believe that person is still alive at all times. Yeah. Um, so they just, they make the driver of the taxi they're driving, like, duck, while Peter uses his webs to, like, snag the giant sub- Midtown Tunnel shark and punch the crap out of it and take out just this- it's huge! It's, like, four or five times the size of Jaws, who's already a very big shark. And do all of it in plain, non-costume, just like, you just keep looking away and driving, driver. Don't pay attention to what I can do. Um, and, like, I hope no one else is looking. <laughs> I mean, at this point, everyone is just expecting to see weird shit. I don't think anyone's gonna figure out that you're Spider-Man from this. Um, and I really love that we just have a giant shark in, in the Midtown Tunnel for three pages that'll never come up again. But, uh, that's Inferno. Yeah. We had free pages to fill. Inferno can explain literally anything. Maybe McFarlane felt like drawing a shark. Yeah, McFarlane was like, you know what I saw last night? Jaws. I want to draw a big old shark. And they were like, well, we don't have a scene where Spider-Man's on a boat. He's like, that's fine. The shark can swim through air. Yeah. It's a demon shark, presumably. I don't know, maybe there's a shark statue somewhere that I just don't know about in New York that this is supposed to be. Maybe at an aquarium or something, I don't know. Yeah. Meanwhile, Kurt Connors is in his herpetology lab, trying not to turn into the lizard, saying he does not want to turn into the lizard. I don't, I don't. And then as he slams his fist down onto his table, it turns into a scaly hand, and he says, I do, as he is fully transformed into the lizard, just like dramatically posed his jacket billowing impressively although i would say this is the least impressive billowy thing that we've had in these issues well it's like mcfarlane working his cape physics in even when there's no cape it's like we'll at least do what we can with a lab coat it's a it long lab coat yeah and like his pants are shredded from the physical transformation so we get more of the like ripped up cloth the ripped up cloth is great. I really like this lizard. This is a very good lizard. It is, yeah. Um, so they make it to Aunt May's house in Queens. Uh, it's it's a Forest Hills boarding home. I kind of vaguely remember this. There's like a lot of there's there's some old people that she's like taking care of, which I'm just like again. Aunt May is a caregiver when she's always on the edge of death. Just seems like a bad idea, but okay. Um, there is. Christy, who is Mary Jane's cousin, or maybe her niece, who is like a 14-year-old girl who has a precocious crush on Peter that reads as very creepy in the tie-ins, but luckily she's only in two, like, four panels of this, so I don't have to put up with her for very long here. But, like, she spies on him in the shower, which is just fucked up. Oh. Uh... Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't like this kid. Mary Jane is like, leave my man alone. And I'm like, I mean, the way you phrase that is weird, Mary Jane. This is a child. Why didn't you just tell her it's bad to spy on people in showers? Well, the thing is also that she doesn't even stay consistent in how old she looks. Like, I get the impression that some of these panels look older than I think she's supposed to be. It's weird. And also, in one of the panels, the coloration on the lips is just the same white as her teeth, which 
I can't stop looking at. She's wearing white lipstick. Doesn't look good. <laughs> Would not recommend that look for the catwalk. Um, so Aunt May has gone to try and find Peter and Mary Jane about 10 minutes before they showed up. Because this is a sitcom. Um, so Peter swings out of the top of the building as Spider-Man to try and go find Aunt May back in Manhattan. Because he's like, look, things are really fucking weird over there. I don't want Aunt May to be there. Meanwhile, Aunt May is fine. She couldn't find a taxi cab, so she's just come back home. She immediately comes back like Peter slips out the window with Spider-Man in a period of like five minutes that she was gone. So congrats, Peter. This is just, it's just a comedy of errors. Uh, so he's on his way to Manhattan to try and find Aunt May where she isn't. And meanwhile, so Kurt Connors is the lizard. His wife, Martha? Yeah. And his son, Billy. There we go. Martha and Billy. Pretty sure it's Martha. Is it Martha? I have no idea. This is this is your favorite Spider-Man villain. How do you not know? Because I don't actually read much Spider-Man. I just think he looks cool. <sighs> I don't care about his human life. I care about when he's scaly. <laughs> okay, well, then they are in Manhattan to come and, like, they've had marital difficulties ever since her husband would occasionally turn into a seven-foot-tall reptile man who wants to kill her and her cut son and eat them. Yeah. Which he does eventually manage to do, so, like, good on Lizard for eventually achieving his goals, but not in this story. <laughs> in the meantime... They are trying to do what they can to make things work, and they're driving to meet him, and... She explains the lizard backstory, which, like, yeah, okay, we, we, we know this. It's fine. Yeah. It's the lizard. It's not complicated. And so they are in the city. I guess they didn't notice Inferno was happening, because they meet with the god who has glowing red eyes and is smiling evilly as he says that, um... Kurt is in the library, which, like, <laughs> how, how far into Inferno, New York, do you get without noticing that the fucking Inferno is happening, and there's demons everywhere just causing chaos and doing, like, Ghostbusters gags? We've seen the buildings. Yeah, like, if you just look at the skyline, the Empire State Building is literally, like, 20 times taller than it's supposed to be. And is, like, made of H.R. Geiger stuff. Like, it looks like it's out of an alien movie. And this guy has glowing red eyes, and, and, and Martha's just like, Odd, Officer Murphy doesn't seem like himself today. So they go to the library, and this guy pulls out the occult drawer of, like, the, the library cards, and pulls a bunch of, like, demon faces out of them. It's great. I love the Inferno. It's just, yeah, this one god is now just demonically possessed, and he's like, I'm gonna summon more demons from the occult section of the Empire State University Library. Meanwhile, there's two kids who have, like, snuck out of home because they want to see the floats from the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, which is probably going to get cancelled because of the Inferno happening, which is fun. So they find the Spider-Man balloon, which is an actual balloon that's in that parade, and it comes to life and starts attacking them. That bastard Spider-Man that J. Jonah's always talking about. He's a menace and a threat. Uh, meanwhile, Martha and Billy are running away from just a bunch of d 
demon monsters, um, they don't really look like any of the ones that we necessarily see in some of the X-Men issues of Inferno, but also the demons from Inferno can kind of look like anything. And I guess these were summoned from the occult draw, so they're maybe not even like demons of Limbo. Yeah, just whatever demons we need to immediately get punched away. Yeah, because the lizard shows up and heroically saves them, shouting, Leave them alone! They're mine! Um, so Martha's like, see, I told you'd be okay, Billy. Your father may look scary, but he's still dead. As he, like, throws a demon out the window with his lizard strength. Um, so Spider-Man sees the shattered window at ESU, and he's like, oh, uh, well, oh, oh that's, that's Martha and Billy Connors. Oh, the doc must have turned into lizard to help his family fight these monsters. Better help him out before he... But then he looks over and he sees the Thanksgiving Day Parade, like, Spider-Man loose as well. And it's like, what the heck is that? The Stay Puff Spider-Man? Which, just like, Inferno and Ghostbusters, it's a constant thing. I didn't even mention the hot dog cart being attacked by ghosts in a previous issue, in like a one-panel thing. Which is also just directly referencing a shot from Ghostbusters. Is this where you tell me you've never seen Ghostbusters? I've never seen Ghostbusters. You should watch Ghostbusters. You like Inferno, right? It's like that, but, like, just Bill Murray deadpanning his way through it. Okay. It's good. There's a way no one's ever described it. Um, so Spider-Man pulls the spire off the Chrysler building and uses it to puncture the Thanksgiving Day Parade, like, Spider-Man balloon, which also can turn its head a full, like, 180 degrees, which is creepy and cool. I like that the balloon comes to life. This was kind of an unmissable thing to do, I think back in, like, with Inferno, when else are you going to be able to come up with, like, a narrative reason for Spider-Man to fight the giant balloon Spider-Man? Yeah. Uh, we get back to the main story as, you know, the lizard is hanging out there, and Martha says, darling, you saved us, and lizard goes, yes, but only because I wanted the incomparable pleasure of killing you myself. Who could have seen this coming? Yeah, Martha, look at him. Look how many teeth he has. He has a lot of teeth. There's like a lot of just tooth constantly on display here. This isn't like a friendly transformation. Yeah. He needs to destroy all vestiges of the most hated of mammals, Kurt Connors. Vestiges that include Bloodkin. So, honestly, Martha comes across as delusional on this because Spider-Man comes in and saves him. She's like, don't hurt him. He doesn't really want to hurt us. And it's like, uh... Well, Lizard definitely does, Martha. He was just talking about how much he wants to kill you. Like, maybe Kurt doesn't, and she just doesn't want her husband to die, but there's only so much you can do. The thing is, he just keeps turning into the Lizard. Yeah. It keeps happening. So Peter has previously cured the Lizard, which I question the use of the word cure here, but I guess you could argue this is... I don't know, what do you call it when you temporarily fix the problem? Yeah, I mean, a temporary cure, at least, sure. like, alleviates. Yeah, there we go. He's alleviated the problem by making him not, like, seven foot tall and trying to kill his family anymore, but he still could, that could still happen at any time, apparently. So he's got this cure together, but, you know, Kurt's climbed up the outside of the building Dracula style and busts in and they get into a fight. And Peter's very quickly, I guess because, once again, he's done this whole lizard thing a whole bunch, so he just is very quickly able to dunk the cure down lizard's throat, but this time it doesn't work. So he's gonna use a power cable 
to try and like give the lizard an electric shock which should like activate the chemical even more or whatever science but there's a chance it's gonna hurt kurt as well so billy grabs spider-man's leg and is like don't do it uh which gives the lizard enough of a chance to knock over spider-man is like thank you for that because you did that for me i'll kill you quickly now come here yeah just i want to eat you my precious but kurt's left hand which the left arm is so kurt has one arm that's why he did the whole thing where he becomes a lizard because he's trying to like grow his arm back with science but it didn't work out because it turned him into a seven foot tall lizard man his left arm which is the one that he has when he's human still has like enough control from kurt to try and reach for the cable itself and so the lizard really (laughs) insanely but really kind of cool is like well i'll just bite the arm off i can always grow another one later but Peter's able to distract him enough that the, like, Kurt arm is able to grab the cable. And he immediately turns back into a human being and begs everyone to stay away from him. Because he's very dangerous to be around. So Spider-Man agrees to sort of take Martha and Billy out of the city and, and see them safely away. Uh, before he starts looking for Aunt May again. Um, and Kurt... It's just like, I'm, I'm going to have to send support payments to you, but I I can't be around you guys because I'm worried I'm going to wind up killing you. Uh, Mary Jane shows up in a cab, which the amount they must have spent on cab fares going in and out of New York in the middle of the fucking inferno. Yeah. Doing all of this. Um, she shows up and is like, I have to tell uh, a student named Peter Parker that his aunt is safe in Queens. Have you seen him? And, and they're just like, uh, no, but, uh, uh that's okay. <laughs> Spider-Man's like, okay, cool, come over here. So, yeah, they're gonna go back to Queens and hang out there until everything sort of finishes up, which it kind of is at this point. Like, I think at this point we're kind of done with the, the Inferno. This is the last of the Spider-Man tie-ins to it. Yeah, like, there's a page at the end of this issue, like, leading into something in, like, the regular book plot, but it really doesn't have anything to do with Inferno. Yeah, it's just this one guy being incredibly creepy about Mary Jane, which I kind of remember this too. She had a stalker because she was a minor celebrity at the time. Sucks to be Mary Jane, frankly. Yeah, but that does it. That's Amazing Spider-Man Inferno. A topic which you had had in mind for us to do before they announced that new crossover event. Very prescient of you. Which right now, and well, see the thing is they got Zeb Wells to write Spider-Man, which means that Spider-Man doing Inferno stuff was inevitable. Because that's the thing Zeb Wells does every time he writes a Marvel book. Which I love, by the way, to be clear. There is a Spider-Man crossover with the X-Men happening right now called Dark Web, which, like, Madeline Pryor, the Goblin Queen who is the reason Inferno happened, is teaming up with Spider-Man's pissed-off memory-white clone, Ben Riley, which is like, he's evil right now, don't worry about it. Ben Riley fans, unfortunately, you never, you're now in the same boat as the Mary Jane fans, okay? We're just gonna be eternally miserable. But, like, this story could be cool. Because, frankly, uh, the Goblin Queen and Ben Riley teaming up in any capacity is extremely funny. Marvel's most misbegotten clones, and it's just fully an Inferno sequel, but this time with more Spider-Man being involved and I guess having to understand what's happening. This'll do us for Inferno for now, though. 
there's some other tie-ins that we may get to in time, but... We may even talk about the actual X-Men story. Mayhaps, <laughs> but for next week, we're going to be discussing Dinosaur Sanctuary Volume 1. At last! Yeah, we told you that like two weeks ago, but it's actually going to happen, and we can guarantee it because we literally already recorded it. So next week, we will actually be talking about dinosaurs. Through the magic of release schedules, next week, the thing we recorded an hour and a half ago. Yep, so thank you for listening, and see you then. Bye. Bye.